to the Francis Farmer Show. We are here uh, to talk about the 2018 Vancouver International Film Festival. Uh, my name is Sean Gilman, and I am here with Evan Morgan. And uh, this is like the least populated Francis Farmer Show in <laughs> a couple of years, because it's only the two of us. We were the only ones who went to Vancouver this year. So, Aside from all those people who are already in Vancouver. Right. Uh, we were the only people who wrote about it on uh, Seattle Screen Scene, except for our friend Lawrence, who uh, contributed a, ve a very long uh, appreciation of La Flore, which... Uh, Appropriately long, I would imagine. Yeah, which neither of us got to see because it played after we left town, correct? Yep. And uh, which we hope to see someday. I think Lawrence is going to have uh, some more on the site coming up soon, but... Uh, he had uh, other engagements and could not join us on the podcast, unfortunately. Uh, but we are here, and we're going to talk about some movies. So, Evan, before we do that, uh, I kind of uh, we I think in last year's VIF podcast, and definitely in this year's SIF mm -hmm. podcast, kind of complained about the. Uh, the movie year and the film festivals as a reflection of that. Uh, what did you think of this year's VIF? Well, as much as uh, I enjoy coming on this podcast to just complain, uh, this year I didn't really have much to complain about. I thought this was a pretty excellent year and it's shaping up to be, uh, I think, a really strong year overall. And there's a lot of films that I quite like. Um, probably this is like the strongest VIF um, that I can remember since, uh, was it 2015 when we had Cemetery of Splendor and The Assassin and Mountains Made Apart. Um, I don't think there were any films that were quite batting on the level of those films for me, but a lot of really strong films this year. Um, and so, yeah, I thought this was an excellent festival. And I think it had kind of uh, bounced back a little bit maybe from some of the, the omissions that we complained about last year. I really felt like I was able to see the bulk of the the films that were coming out of Cannes and and Venice, etc., that I wanted to see this year at BIF. So that's why I go. So happy that uh, it worked out. Yeah, there were there were a couple big titles missing. I think the the Claire Denis film, obviously, being the big one. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the Frederick Wiseman was kind of a a strange omission as well. But I don't think that they really have any control over that. I think that's more Ooh. his distributor. Yeah, and they didn't get the Wiseman last year either. Or was it in the year before that, maybe? Uh, it's been a couple years. National Gallery played there. It's, yeah, that's the, I saw that one there. That's the last one I remember. But uh, he's had three others since then, right? Uh, yeah, two, two or three. Two, okay. Uh, last year, uh, it, uh, it actually opened in Seattle during that's right. the Vancouver Film Festival, so it kind of wouldn't have made sense to play there. I think it actually opened in Vancouver like the week after the festival ended as well. But, uh, but on that, the Ted Fent film also was kind of a weird omission because, uh, because his last one played there on, on 35. So yeah. And only, uh, and only one of the, the Hong Sang Su films, which. Yeah. This is a disturbing pattern. I will say if I can find one thing to complain about, because I feel like I must, that's, that's going to be my formal complaint is I don't know why we've uh, entered this world where we only get one, one Hong film a year now. Uh, but that seems to be the pattern. So, yeah, but, but like the vast majority of the films that I was looking forward to coming out this fall, coming out of Cannes and from the, the late summer film festivals, uh, ended up at, at VIF and, and I was actually able to see them. So yeah, I agree. It, this is one of the strongest VIFs in a long time. Uh, uh, it's got a couple of films, I think that if not quite on the, like the level of the assassin or definitely on the level of mountains made apart, um, but uh, but it's notable for like just how many really good films there mm -hmm. are. Like I'm going through like on Letterboxd, and we know that my my star ratings are are inflated. But I have I have 21 four star movies that played at at wow. Earth, which is uh, which is really really good. And it's like twice as many films as I actually wanted to see at this year's SIF. So. <laughs> 
So that's I mean, a, a good a good barometer of quality, I think. But yeah, uh, I, I think I think this is a really good year, and I think they yeah. they did a, a a pretty good job of of programming it. So yeah. So kudos to Sif yeah, <laughs> or to Viv, <laughs> not to Sif. Uh, <laughs> we'll we'll see uh, how much is, uh, Sif's quality this year was just a matter of the film year last year. In, in how good next year's Seattle Film Festival is, because I suspect it'll be a lot better than this year's was. I'm because, not holding my breath. Sif uh, in in the previous couple of years was actually pretty good. So I, that's, they were working with a uh, a somewhat weaker uh, set of films. That's I'll grant that. Yeah. So let's uh, let's move on to specifics. What uh, what. What's the first movie you want to talk about? Well, so I think the, the first movie that I want to talk about uh, is Christian Petzold's Transit. Um, I've long been a big uh, Petzold fan. I think he's someone who's sort of often hard to advocate for because he's, for a lot of his career, worked in this kind of like termite mode. But I think with Phoenix, he, like, he took a big uh, leap forward in terms of conceptual ambition and had this like much greater willingness to engage with like the emotional implications of his work. Um, and I think that in a lot of ways, transit is a continuation of that. Uh, yeah. There's this interview that Petzl gave uh, a while back that I think about often when thinking about his films where he uh, talked uh, about the impetus for Jericho which is his adaptation for, uh, or of the Postman Always Rings Twice, the James M. Cain novel, um, which emerged from this kind of like pedantic question that Heron Faroki posed uh, to him, which was, which American novel takes up class struggle in the U.S.? And I just think it says a lot about Petzl's kind of like methodology and the way he approaches uh, his uh, films in that he like, starts with a question often and he kind of works almost like like an essayist like interrogating these texts whether the text is like a genre or in the case of transit a novel that he's adapting and kind of like placing his questions like parallel to the text um so that you're always kind of aware like the questions that he's asking about what he's doing in his films um but in some way like he's able been able to find in these more recent films in phoenix and transit a way to make that sort of interrogative process result in something that I find like genuinely uh, emotional. Uh, and so like in transit, the, the obvious sort of animating question is quite simple actually. And I think his most sort of daring conceptually, which is like, how is, how does the action of Anna Sager's novel, which is set in world war two about migrants fleeing uh, or attempting to flee the invading Nazis in France, uh, what what happens with that novel if you basically layer it on top of the present? And so the film takes place entirely uh, shorn, basically, of historical signifiers for World War II, aside from like a stray passport here, like an old dress that someone's wearing. Everything else is in the present tense. Um, like And especially because I find Petzl's style so attuned to the kind of uh, like space, like these like late capitalist spaces, like his style feels very tied to this like moment of like late capitalist Europe of these like anonymous business parks and like mid budget hotels. And his style is sort of like suffused with the, like the kind of like clear light and like climate controlled air of, of like those spaces. It gives his movies this like real kind of like clarity in a way that in especially in, in this film, placing the sort of World War II context of these migrants fleeing uh, Nazi Germany into the present. The clarity of his film just is to me just like this brutal confrontation uh, with the way that like history has these like afterlives in the present. And he's asking, I think, really uncomfortable questions about, uh, about what that means for sort of history to be reemerging uh, in the present. And I don't think transit's a film that really has answers per se. Uh, and in fact, like the movie has this kind of unshakable sense of like indeterminacy for me, but I think Petzold is quite clear uh, and clear eyed about the ways in which like the demons of 
the 20th century are sort of slouching back towards Europe. Um, and in this present moment, I, I think I'm quite moved by uh, the, again, the clarity of, of what Petzl is doing here. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I, I really loved uh, this movie too. I, I thought about it in like slightly different terms than you did, but, uh, but I think we're like thinking the same thing. Like, like for, for me, I think about it in terms of, of like as a remake of, of Casablanca, which is uh, more kind of film specific than like your abstract uh view of him as like setting a question and trying to work it out in like an essay film style mm -hmm. to me it's more like he's taking a genre template and then transposing it onto the present and that relation between like the genres of the 1940s and and 50s to the social problems of today ends up with the same result that you're talking about which is the recurrence of of historical problems into mm -hmm. the present. Yeah, well, and I think what you're saying really isn't, I mean, we're sort of all saying the same thing, like you yeah. had suggested, like in a way, that's what I find so fascinating about Petzl. Like he's constantly asking these kinds of questions and there's so many different ways into the film. Like all of those things are operative in the film simultaneously and like enrich, like the questions like enrich each other in a way. And like, like it's, it's it's a very serious film. It's not like strictly funny, but it is really enjoyable watching the way he, he twists the basic scenario of, of Casablanca into mm -hmm. like new and more, more modern directions. Yeah. And like genre, it has always been really important to Petzl and he like is always in his film sort of like taking a genre template and, and playing with it. And so I think you're totally right that that is a plane on which the film is, is constantly working. Um, and like, I'm also really fascinated by like the way this, the movie has these kind of like dual tracks built into the film anyways. Like there's this shot, uh, fairly early in the film that kind of like in my mind acts as its sort of signal image where the, the main character is fleeing from Marseille to Paris, like, and he's hidden in a train car mm -hmm. and the camera looks outside uh, as if it's sort of like a window now as things are passing by the train and Petzl like creates this montage of landscapes that are going by, which is quite unlike anything else in any of his other films. Um, and then the montage ends with this kind of cross dissolve to these two train tracks that are like bathed in blue and blue recurs throughout the film, like an important color throughout. And these two train tracks are running in parallel and like an occasional interchange, like will appear briefly as the, the tracks are running as if sort of to like promise a connection. And then the lines just like keep hurtling forward alone. And like the whole movie to me is like constructed in that way. You like have all these, these parallel tracks that are happening that have some kind of promise of intersection, but never quite intersect. Like you have the narration and the images and the narration, the images are not describing the same things exactly. Like the narr the narrator will describe what you're seeing on screen. It initially sounds like he's just describing plainly what's happening. But as the film goes on, you realize he's actually sort of imbuing uh, his version of the story with like additional like emotion and, and emotiveness. Like he describes people crying and they're clearly not crying. Um, and then there's this, this sort of like parallel track of the main character who is himself two people. Like he's, the the character himself who's fleeing the Nazis, but he's also the writer whose persona in a sort of Hitchcockian way he is like taken on as a sort of transference. And then there's the Marie, who is herself kind of like a double for Nina Haas, who is Petzold's regular sort of like actor fetish, who isn't in the film, but is the actress who plays Marie in this film is uh, sort of directed by Petzold to look and behave exactly like Haas does in his other movies. And so there's like all these different planes at which the film is operating where it's never, the planes like never quite intersect in a way. And all of that gives the, the film this like very kind of liminal quality, yeah. um, which I is appropriate for a film about migrants and people trapped in this bureaucracy. Yeah. It's not, it's not really said in the past and it's not really said in the present. 
uh, the lead actor is not Joaquin Phoenix. It looks a lot like him. <laughs> I, that was not one I had thought of, but uh, which takes. you know is is of a piece with Phoenix, which stars uh, a guy who looks like Brendan Fraser, but is not Brendan Fraser. <laughs> I mean, Petzl clearly has a thing for doppelgangers of American actors. Yeah, who are in fact German. <coughs> So I don't know. It's it's a it's a really fascinating film and also really enjoyable. Like of we saw there, uh, most of the best films at at VIF this year are are genre films, and they're like uh, directors who have made like non genre things making really good genre films, like uh, like Asako one and two, which, which both of us have written about is, is very much, uh, like a Japanese romantic comedy and, uh, Ash's purest white is, a is, uh, kind of, a, a gangster movie. And, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of the other films like cold war, which, uh, you didn't see, I think. No, I wish I had, but, um, so. Yeah, it's also it's like a condensed romantic epic. So I mean, and uh, nonfiction. <laughs> the great nonfiction. <laughs> the so controversial good. nonfiction is uh, is it's a Woody Allen comedy. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, a lot of a lot of like really acclaimed uh, international art house directors making really solid genre films this year and and i think i think transit is one of the best of them yeah petzl is just an incredibly he he's like probably our most uh sort of accomplished like classical filmmaker who is working right now i think like he just understands like classical hollywood like decoupage and shooting in a way that it's in his bones in a way that it is for like no one else and like he has this kind of like clinical berlin school approach but all the building blocks of his cinema are just the like deep fundamentals of of like classical kind of filmmaking and i find that very appealing it's so refreshing mm -hmm. after after like 20 years of of lars von Trier and michael Haneke <laughs> acolytes like kind of infesting the international art house to kind of you know a, it's not a return to to classicism because they're they're making new things but they're still hitting all of like the important like pleasure beats in, in mm -hmm. the hollywood you know studio genre system they're making like really smart films that are also fun i don't know mm -hmm. it makes me happy and it helps me stay awake at film festivals, <laughs> which uh, that's a real real problem mm -hmm. to solve. Yeah, and like I've said many times, I've never actually fallen asleep in a movie theater in my entire life. But there were there were a few films at the festival that came really close, and uh, a bunch of them I'm going to like group together since. We're talking about genre we'll move on to a genre that i am really getting sick of <laughs> and that is the uh the brooding moody dark asian noir wherein nothing actually happens but there's like dread everywhere <laughs> and rain a lot of rain a lot so much rain <laughs> There are a lot of there are a lot of these films at the festival this year. It's like every day I felt like it was like okay, it's two o'clock, it's time for the moody Asian noir. Yeah. So what did we see? We saw Manta Ray. Manta Ray, yeah. Which is in that category, but uh, I can't remember. Was that one fun at all? <laughs> I mean, I didn't really like it, but it does have like a very cool opening sequence with all those uh, sort of like party lights, like Christmas lights. Yeah, that Christmas, are like Christmas in a lights forest. always make uh, a, your genre movie better. Yeah, and like there's like a guy with like a gun walking through the forest uh, with all the like Christmas lights, and then it becomes something a little bit more conventional for a little while. Yeah, um, it's a it's a ripoff of of Chiming Liang's "I Don't Want to Sleep Alone." Right. Kind of. It definitely has some of that in it, for sure. Um, I think some of the images are, like, right out of 
the well, spe- well, the chai film ends with that like little toy thing floating on the water that's like got the same kind of like Christmas light vibe or whatever. Yeah. So those those lights definitely, I think, uh, call back to that movie. But oh, it's been a while since I've seen so it. So Manta Ray is uh, that's a Thai movie. Thai uh, movie. Yeah. Uh, Pudapong Aaron Thang. Uh, so yeah, there was that one, uh, which obviously is forgettable because I just had to look up what I wrote about it. Uh, <laughs> another one was Lush Reads, which I saw and you did not. I did not see. Which, as like moody Asian noirs where not much happens go, is extremely competent. Like it's really well made and it does like create this kind of palpable sense of dread which if i had never seen anything like it before would be really cool mm-hmm. but uh i've seen like a dozen movies just like it uh it's about uh god i can't even remember the plot <laughs> you could probably just start talking about one of the other films that you do remember and it's probably the same plot but yeah it's uh it's like a woman in the city and she's like feeling really depressed and gets fired from her job. She's a journalist. And then it flashes back to sometime before where she was investigating something in the country and a bunch of weird shit happens to her in the country. And then it goes back to the present. And at some point I think she was pregnant. Yeah, it's, it's fine. And most of these movies are fine, but they don't, really go for anything anything other than that and like it's it's not enough for me to to know that like the protagonist is depressed well and i thought you had a really good assessment when we were talking about this at the festival as to why they sort of get stuck in this inert place because i think you basically said that you know the chinese sort of censor a lot of these films are coming out of china right like the chinese censorship I think right doesn't allow for a lot of violence. They can't really be violent. Yep. But they then, can't be. They can't be graphically violent. Uh, they can't be uh, like explicitly about like state violence and state repression or anti-cop or pro-crime, which, when you're making a noir, kind of puts you in a in a box. Like mm-hmm. there's so many things that you can't do. You have to convey your anti-authoritarian message through mood, which I mean, sure. One of the films but we saw, but it maybe, doesn't get you anywhere. Yeah. Uh, the the best of them, not counting uh, Long Day's Journey in Tonight, which is, I think I think you have to like be familiar with like these mediocre films in the genre to really appreciate why Long Day's Journey is great. Mm-hmm. But uh, the best of these kind of mid-level ones was was one that you watched too, and that's uh, A Land Imagined from mm-hmm. from Singapore, and it's the same kind of thing. It's it's very moody. The the characters are depressed. They move slow. There's lots of music and colored lights. Uh, somebody dies, there's a flashback, everything takes place at night among poor workers uh, or or cops who are overworked. But there's a couple sequences in Land Imagine that that break out of that, and uh, especially one, uh, what's what's the video game the guy's playing? Counter-Strike? Counter-Strike, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like this this dream reverie built out of images from Mm Counter-Strike that... uh, that I thought that I found like really moving and really it was something I hadn't seen. Like I hadn't seen video games used like that in a film since like Hit the Pass. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I I was not. I think you liked A Land Imagined more than I did. I think I was a little more burnt out on it uh, than you were. But it did kind of come alive for me too during that video game sequence. And especially as someone who played a lot of uh, Counter Strike growing up, like the way that it moves like around the the map uh that the like players are playing on and you can like move through walls during in that game like when you've died and you sort of like assume this like camera eye that's like floating around and it uses the way you can like move through walls and like go through into these kind of like weird like 
mise en abeme spaces where like the background just like repeats forever um to like very hallucinatory effect and that's when like the soundtrack i think really like finds its groove um in that sequence as well and so if the whole movie i think kind of was able to generate the mood that that sequence had for me i, I probably would have quite liked it but i also it took me a long time in that one to sort of understand that it was going for something quite that dreamy because it does start in a somewhat more um, like grounded place, quite literally, and it like takes place on like a construction site, and like earth and like gravel are important to the film. Um, but once it finally sort of took off a bit, I, I was a little bit more with it. But the first stretch of the film was uh, a little dry for me. Yeah, for sure, and you know I. I feel bad ranking on these movies because uh, not only does it like lose me credibility to like uh, Chinese romantic comedies more than these like various serious that gives dramas. you credibility, Sean. Are you kidding? Does it? Yes. <laughs> does it? To think that like this is not what I expected and and Soulmate are are really great, but but Lush Reads is like meh. You're like you're like the people out there uh, championing for his girl Friday back in like 1940. You know, I, I, I like his girl Friday, but I like I like Maltese Falcon too. Oh. But <laughs> I I don't know. Uh, I just I if it, it I wish there was more diversity in the kinds of films that made it to VIF at least at least this year it seemed like really heavily slanted towards this particular type of Asian film when in previous years I I, I felt like it was more eclectic mm -hmm. and and that might just be because I'd already seen uh, Girls Always Happy which is a very different kind of Chinese film that's that's actually really interesting in a lot of like new and exciting ways uh, but that played at SIF I believe so I'd already seen it or um, uh, Microhabitat, the, mm -hmm. the Korean film, which is also a, a very different kind of film uh, that was not one of my favorites from uh, the New York Asian Film Festival, but is, is definitely a, a, a film worth watching. So because I didn't actually see those at VIF, and, and, I, uh, and I did watch like the moody Asian noirs, it kind of colored my perception, I think, of this year's a gateway stream as they call it. <laughs> uh -huh. so, but then there's a long day's journey tonight. But then there's a long day's journey tonight. So uh, you want to talk about that one and why it's so much sure. better than these? Yes. Well, or not, so I, as the case may be. <laughs> well, I do think it is quite a bit better. And it, it is definitely working in that template. Like the opening section or the first half of the film basically uh, is in some ways actually the most conventional noir plot of among these films that we're talking about it. Um, it stars Tong Wei as this sort of like femme fatale character who in a sort of like double indemnity type way gets the lead in the film to uh, murder her uh, boyfriend um, who's like sort of a, a minor uh, underground like drug lord or something like that. Uh, in the town uh, in Kylie, where uh, Begon's prior film Kylie Blues is set, it's, uh, Begon's hometown, uh, and that whole opening sequence like is playing with this very elemental, very classical noir plot, but it is done in the most uh, sort of like dreamy, fragmented way possible. Um, and I think I like you've talked about the other films as being competent, which they are, but the just like sort of unbelievable stylistic confidence of be gone to just on his second film, just create these, these sequences that are totally um, divorced from a kind of like narrative coherence where he just doesn't care if you have no idea what the hell is happening. Mm -hmm. Though I think, if you are paying attention, it's actually all quite coherent, but he is just total, totally invested in creating this like mood and kind of like wispy, smoky atmosphere that you can just linger in. And um, despite the opening, I think confusing a lot of people, although actually I didn't find it quite so hard to follow once I was able to 
key into the fact that the guy's hair color was changing throughout because he's sort of like salt and pepper in some scenes and then has like a young man's jet black hair and others. And once I realized that was indicating to me what was happening on the different timelines, I think I kind of understood what was happening on the plot level. But even if you're not, I think, following the kind of elemental noir stuff that's happening, the the mood that he creates is like the, you know, supercharged, version of what all these other movies are trying to do because he just has a preternatural talent and willingness to be uh just totally fragmentary in a way that i think these other filmmakers uh are not quite willing they're not quite willing to go that far yeah it feels like uh like he is precise with his filmmaking like he knows exactly like the scenes that he wants to have and what he wants to leave out whereas other people are just kind of like deleting information haphazardly in order to create like an aura of incoherence and 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 let the mood come out of that mm -hmm. if that makes sense uh and then you get to the second half <laughs> right of the film yeah and i will say like so the second half of the film is like kylie blues which in some ways this film is is basically a remake a bigger budget remake of is one long take uh shot for what an hour or so um that moves through like a huge swath of terrain up and down different levels like there's a sequence or a part of the shot where uh someone like gets on a like a zip line basically and the camera like follows them on a zip line at one point it like is on a drone and like flying over uh this town where the the sequence is happening and then it lands back down on the ground again and, and keeps moving um and so it's incredibly well choreographed uh but i will say that for whatever reason that first section of the film um contains a lot more of the moments that keep coming back to me uh, from the film like there's that shot uh where the camera's like in one tunnel of a sort of like two tunneled uh, mountain pass and it moves across laterally from one tunnel to the other, like in the inside of a car kind of, and there's like a, a windshield wiper. And as you move from one tunnel to the other and the windshield wiper like wipes the, the windshield, all of a sudden you've moved not just from one tunnel to another, but from one timeline to another. Yeah. Um, and I just think that, Though Begone is incredibly, uh, he does the like long take thing better than anyone else really. And like the pyrotechnics of it are incredibly impressive. He's so good with these like small moments that a part of me kind of wished the film had stayed in that style in some ways, because I think he is thinking in these like discrete shots that have this kind of power. And in some ways the long take robs him of that i fear though in its way it's quite impressive yeah uh weirdly enough the movie that this reminds me of most uh not in terms of like any uh, any like actual like thing in the film but as as a film in a filmmaker's career is uh boogie nights yeah actually which was Paul Thomas Anderson's second film. It was the first time he had like a big budget. And I mean, the, the stars weren't significantly bigger than, than his first film, but there were more of them. Uh, and it's the film where he got like every idea that he had ever had when he wanted to be a director, like out of his system. Like he wanted to to do the shot from I Am Cuba, so he did that. And he wanted to like have musical dance sequences and split greens, and he did that. And he wanted to have like you know snaking long takes and and uh, the shot from uh, Raging Bull at the end. And he got that all out of his system, and then he started making Paul Thomas Anderson movies. And he's become, I think, increasingly better a filmmaker as he's gone along. 
And I kind of think that this is like uh, Bigon's version of that. Like he made his independent film, and then this is his first big film. He's working with with Tong Wei, who is by far the biggest star he's ever worked with. He's got a lot of money, so he got to do all of these things. He got to do his like Wong Kar Wai homage. He got mm-hmm. to do the the same long take he did before, but bigger and in three D. And now that he's kind of got this out of his system, I'm like fascinated to see what like his next five films are going to be like. Because, totally. Like I, I, I do think he's going to be one of the, the most important directors of the 2020s. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that assessment. And I think for me, the, the thing that holds me back the most from really loving this film, and I, I do quite like it a lot and I am, quite eager to revisit it because I do just kind of want to linger in its mood again, uh, is the way in which he, uh, like pilfers a little too directly for my taste from those like art house figures that he clearly is inspired by. Like Wong, you mentioned, like there's all these Wongian clocks. There's like the glass shot from stalker. There's like a very stray dogs like scene where someone is like eating, uh, an apple in this case and like crying in front of the camera. And there's just a lot of ways where that a lot of ways in which he's like taking these images and trying to suture them into his film in a way that sometimes works for me. Like the clocks I think seem like quite like deeply ingrained uh, in his aesthetic to me. And I quite buy that uh, partly because I think that's like connected to Kylie blues and it's doing similar things. Whereas like, I think there's like a, there's like a joke referring to like a clock painted on a wall. Oh, is there Kylie blues? Oh, that could be like somebody like puts something else over, like takes a clock down and puts something. Else oh, you're right. Wall. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Um, and yeah, I just like some of those work, but then like the stalker glass thing, like that just is, doesn't work for me. And it comes kind, of, kind of takes me out of the mood of the movie because I recognize too clearly, uh, what it is. Um, but, you know, the other thing that I have to remind myself with Be Gone is that he is my age, which is like a personal offense to me, but like, I'm not that old. So, you know, he's still a young filmmaker. He has, uh, I think, some leeway to uh, be a little too, where his influence is a little too heavily on his sleeve. But I think you're quite right that he will likely be making major films for many years to come. And if they're uh, even just a hair better than this one, they will be quite great. So, yeah, I think uh, I think he's already like he's not a Pichapong where it's ethical, but he's already one of the like the foremost directors of that kind of like sleepy sleepy cinema. I called it mm-hmm. like the the dream state in and out of wakefulness. Like he, I think he's he's got that way better than any of of like the moody noir directors and there's mm-hmm. a difference between between liminal and and depressing and i think he's on the he's on the right side of that <laughs> uh, so what should we talk about next uh well okay i'll mention one film that you didn't see uh but which i did want to bring up because um like uh, the Begone, it is divided into two very distinct uh, halves, although they're not uh, equal in runtime, um, and which I'm a little reluctant to mention anything more than that about how it's structured, but uh, the film is uh, Ulrich Kohler's In My Room, uh, which is a German film. Um, and the movie sort of starts as this like drab European art house thing that I think you would actually really hate Sean. And I think when we were talking about this at the festival, I was like, if you see this movie, you just like have to give it 30 minutes or 35 minutes or however long it is and just not judge what it is up front because it, it starts with this film about this kind of like schlubby 30 something guy and this like almost like Romanian new wave kind of like, he's just hanging out in his like shitty apartment and in his shitty job, like being shitty and like not living uh, sort of like an adult life. Um, and then it transforms into an entirely different movie. Uh, and uh, Kohler is a very weird talent. I think uh, he's like very slippery 
uh, filmmaker, even though he's someone who's like grouped in often with the Berlin school people, um, like Petzl, like his films, well, at least I've I've only seen one other one, um, sleeping sickness, but both of them have this very like unpetzledian tendency to like metamorphosize like in front of your eyes as they go along. And I think he's really interested in ideas of like transformation, um, both like within the text of his films and like politically and socially and personally. Um, and it's like baked into the structure of this one in a way that I find uh, totally fascinating. And I don't know that I want to say much more than that because I think, Though I'm not like a spoilers person, I think part of the way this movie works is not understanding how it's going to continue to transform before your eyes. Um, But I guess I will say more than any other film that I saw, I think, at the festival this this year, I'm less sure of where the filmmaker stands like in relation to what's happening and like what the film is about than anything else um, that I watched. And my own uncertainty about what the movie is and why it is and why Kohler of all people decided to make it, uh, it made it a very thrilling, uh, experience where it just felt like at any moment it could spore into something else. Uh, so. Right on. You've almost got me convinced to go to try. <laughs> you can get past the first 35 minutes. I, I promise you it will be worth your time. I, you know, I'm, I'm warming up. To European cinema, I I really like Transit. I, against all expectations, I I kind of loved Cold War. Well, Cold War is the movie that I was just shocked when I saw that you had rated it four stars on Letterboxd, and no. that shot that way up my uh, my watch list. So. No, nobody was more surprised. Than <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I I I really loved it. Uh, I will talk about movie a movie as well that you did not see. Um, It is, uh, I think, maybe the only Hong Kong film that was at the festival. I'm not sure. Uh, It's it's called Number One Chung Ying Street. And uh, it is kind of the opposite of the way you were describing the, uh, the Kohler film in that you know exactly what it is all the time and then it tells you but it's <laughs> nonetheless really effective i thought it's uh it's uh it's kind of a uh split in half like the first two thirds take place in nineteen sixty seven uh in this region of Hong Kong that's like directly on the border with China as China's like at the height of the cultural revolution and there are like left-wing protests and strikes going on in Hong Kong against the the British imperial rule and it it follows like these kids who are who are left-wing protesters and they get cracked down on by the police and they become like increasingly militant in their response to the police and uh they have like interpersonal relationships like boy and girl are in love and they are neighbors and so on uh and then uh after the the police crackdown in 1967 the film skips ahead to i think two years after the umbrella protests in hong kong and you have the same actors playing characters who are somewhat related to the characters from before but not exactly like they're not specifically their grandchildren but they are related in some way and they're playing out of a, a similar drama as they kind of cope with the aftermath of a government crackdown on a on a left-wing protest and a lot of like the relationship dramas from 50 years earlier are only resolved in the present day setting, which is, mm. I thought, like a really unique way to tell that kind of story. Because it's like one like emotional arc all the way through the film. It just takes place in two different time periods with two different sets of characters, but only one set of actors. And so when- when you say that the the sort of like emotional arc is resolved in the second half, is that like not that the characters recur, but that like the like, situations, like the love story out. and the familial drama and like the sense of 
betrayal by, you know, one friend over another as they choose different sides in the conflict. Mm. Uh, it's all left hanging in 1967. Like none of the none of these conflicts that have been uh, affecting the characters' personal lives uh, are solved in 1967. But the the present day, not quite present day, but present day characters do come to terms with them, and you know, reach an understanding and and all that. Uh, which I don't think I'd ever seen before, uh, but the film is like super didactic <laughs> in its uh, in its like pro protest arguments, and it's it's hard to argue with because I mean they're right, but it uh, it says way too much. Like you could cut out like maybe a third of the screenplay, and it would be like a masterpiece. Of the mm. movie, but then it it wouldn't be as effective as propaganda. Like propaganda needs to be direct. So I don't know. I thought it was a really interesting movie, and it's it's something that I don't think anyone is is talking about. Like I think it it picked up some nominations, maybe the Hong Kong Film Awards, but I don't think it's going to get a release in the U.S. But it's something I think people should definitely look out for on the internet. I think it's it's really worth watching. There's, there haven't been a lot of movies for obvious reasons uh, touching on the umbrella protests, but but most of the ones I've seen are, are really good. Yeah, I, I quite liked um, Yellowing, is that what it's called? The yeah. sort of documentary from a few years ago? Yeah, yeah, and that's, as far as I know, that's never surfaced anywhere outside of outside of festivals. I, I, oh, really? I haven't seen it on the internet. I know the director... Uh, was like the assistant director on uh, a documentary that played at VIF last year. Uh, I've got the blues, hmm. but uh, yeah, yellowing is yellowing's really good. I, I like that a lot. Yeah. Well, this this film sounds interesting. I'll I'm, we'll be curious to check it out. Is this a first time filmmaker or no? You know? It's it's uh it's by Derek Chu, who this is the first of his films I've seen. But he's been making movies for like twenty years. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, he's uh, he's a veteran director, but uh, it just sounds like something that would be like a more like up and coming like Hong Kong kind of director. So that kind of surprises me a little bit. Well, I think I uh. think you need like an older director to have like that kind of historical mm. perspective on it because it's it doesn't have like the immediacy of of yellowing. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's much more uh, kind of withdrawn and taking the long view of progress. Mm. But. Yeah, really interesting movie. You're up. You're up next. <laughs> well, should should we uh, talk about the film that I believe was uh, the last film that you saw at VIF, um, which is uh, Jody Max, The Grand Bazaar, yeah. uh, which is not going to necessarily be an easy film to describe, but uh, is quite delightful. Uh, Jody Mack, who is has to be among the most uh, sort of revered and important experimental filmmakers working uh, today. Uh, Certainly among the most popular. Yes, definitely. Well, and and I think we can touch on that because if I have any reservations about her uh, films and specifically the Grand Bazaar, it's in some ways the way in which I think it it courts popularity um, in a way that is a little unusual for experimental films. And I'm not entirely sure if I, am settled and whether or not I think that's uh, a strength or a weakness of her work. But in any case, she makes uh, these films that to me are like very attuned to uh, the kind of aesthetic pleasures of, uh, and the, the aesthetic tastes of people who are sort of in my generation, uh, this kind of uh, like very millennial bric-a-brac uh, and her films are always extremely inventive in how they deploy the different sort of like textures that she's collected uh, over the years. Um, she seems like very much a, a hoarder of <laughs> all kinds of colorful and tactile things. And the Grand Bazaar is uh, basically uh, sort of a hoarder's uh, uh, dream of a film in a way. It basically follows. Uh, a bunch of textiles 
as they <laughs> traverse the globe uh, through a series of mostly stop motion, but not entirely stop motion um, uh, cinematography that place them in a variety of different contexts. And in some cases, they sort of uh, take on through the way that the shots are framed or the soundtrack uh, a variety of different uh uh, or they sort of like take on the form of a variety of different objects. So there's a sequence where they're like on a clothesline, I believe, and they're like moving across uh, a sort of like wooded landscape. And the way that they're spread out on the clothesline, they kind of look like boxcars on a train. Mm-hmm. And then on the soundtrack, you get like a the sound of like a train rushing by or um, – there's uh, a sequence where you get a close-up of one of the textiles um, that has this sort of like cross-stitching, these like cross-stitched lines that then uh, become the lines of like a fence crossing, uh, sort of like an oceanside beach uh, fence. And the movie is like very playful in that way. It's like having, it's a movie that itself is like clearly having lots of fun and I think doesn't seem to, the, the appeal of Jodie Mack's particular kind of experimental cinema, I think, is that it is shorn of the pretensions or the perceived pretensions of a lot of experimental films. And she is there to have fun, to have pleasure, to give pleasure to her audience. And there is no question that The Grand Bazaar is like a deeply pleasurable experience. It's like colorful. It has an incredibly like energetic soundtrack it's very funny as i think you pointed out sean we're like the only people in the theater laughing at this movie and it is very funny um and so it's a hard film for me to i think uh criticize in a way because i do quite like it and it is very pleasurable but as i said there's something about the way in which your films are so appealing that can occasionally come off as like slightly pandering to me um, but everyone else seems to just unabashedly love it. So I'm just probably wrong on you, that. You, you don't trust the, uh, the pleasure on, on some <laughs> level. I don't, I, I guess is what I'm saying, but it's also a pleasure that just seems so specifically like directed at me and like my generation that like, maybe it's just like uncomfortably accurate in a way that uh unsettles me so it could just be my own insecurities flaring up i I don't know know. i mean you and i are of different generations and i don't know i I don't i don't feel like it's a specifically millennial appealing film i think i think it's targeting a specific kind of cinephile who thinks that match cuts are funny (laughs) And, well, they can be. and that is me. Uh, it's it's all, almost all of the experimental films that I like make humor out of match cuts. So, or editing in in some way. Like what was the what was the James Benning film? At, oh, as uh, if uh, Natural Gallery. Natural no. history. Natural history, sorry. Natural history. <laughs> that the editing just made me laugh all the way through it as like half the audience walked out because they were so bored. Uh, this this was like that for me, except those laughs were like really obvious and like constant all the way through the film. Like like there is no more purely joyous film this year that i've seen than than the grand bazaar like i i loved every minute of it like when it's you know when it's nothing more complicated than just uh shots of textiles on screen cut like 20 frames a second uh, like just kind of blowing up my brain i i still loved it you know it 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 didn't need it doesn't. It doesn't just need to be like the story of of her amazing traveling textiles going around the world and seeing how blankets are made. Uh, <laughs> Even just describing the movie is <laughs> ridiculous. But yeah, it is. But but it's so much fun. And and her short films are really just 
those sequences like the it's like the culminating sequence near the end that's just this long series of like rapid fire shots of the blankets with like no context it's just them themselves and it's just the patterns imprinting themselves on your eyes faster than you can comprehend them uh, and that's what a lot of her her short films recently have been kind of building up to this feature length version of of the textiles uh, and I, I love those shorts too, but and then to add all of the other stuff onto it, like the music and the, the travelogue quality and all of like the really hilarious edits and, and match cuts and, and stuff like that. It's, it's great. The music, the music is great. In fact, as we were locking onto Skype to record, to record this, uh, <laughs> <laughs> this uh, podcast, like, I was reminded of the movie because there's a moment in the film where at some point the like pod or the like Skype, like the Skype theme, bouncy, like Skype theme. Yeah. Like starts playing on the soundtrack and then like someone, whoever composed the soundtrack, like starts like riffing on the like Skype music and the, for like, I don't know, five minutes or something, you get like a sort of like hip hop version of the like Skype theme music. Um, that's like the, the soundtrack to all these textiles uh, traveling the world. And uh, yeah, the movie is extremely playful in that way. And uh, it's hard not to, to be won over by it uh, in some ways. So, and it's also the kind of experimental film that like, if this was played in Seattle, I feel like I could take a whole bunch of people who I would normally not take to something like this uh, to see it. And so it's like very much uh, a, a good candidate for like first experimental feature uh for someone who is maybe a little more trepidatious about that yeah if it if it doesn't have distribution if somebody like like grasshopper or cinema guild doesn't pick this up they're they're nuts because mm -hmm. i mean it's it's the most crowd-pleasing film i saw in vancouver at least our crowd that's true. It's a small crowd, but they were pleased. <laughs> All right. Um, let me see where we are on time. We're just about an hour. Do you want to do another one, or do you want to call it quits there? That's kind of a high point to end on. We can end there. Uh, oh, yeah. The only other one I was thinking about talking about was nonfiction, but I think we can. Start. I mean, you wrote about that, didn't you? I did, yeah. but I do quite like it, so it's up to you. Uh, no, we can skip it. We're at about an hour. Okay, perfect. Okay, so with that, I think we will call it into this podcast. Like a lot of the other movies we saw, we have already written about at Seattle Screen Scene. Like, like I said, Osaka 1 and 2. Uh, we, we talked about Grass like months ago. The, the Hong Sang-soo film. Uh, you wrote about Olivia Sayas' nonfiction, which... Uh, which is a wonderful film that I'm, I can't stop thinking about, despite it being in some ways like kind of terrible. Uh, so... Yeah. So, see nonfiction at your peril, but do see it. See nonfiction. Nonfiction, nonfiction is another movie that's, that's a lot of fun. I like I like the fun movies and Ash's Purest White, which I don't think either of us have actually written about yet. But uh, it's the the new Jia Jianke film. I saw it twice in Vancouver. I really love it, and I'm hoping to write about it before too long. But I gotta rewatch all of Jia Jianke's films first. So so look for that in coming months and. Uh, uh, we are still uh, within the deadline for writing about fifth, so so there might be some more reviews popping up on on Seattle Screen Scene in, over the next couple of weeks. I know Lawrence has uh, another uh, something in the works, and I still have movies to watch that I haven't that I was going to watch this week, but but something else came up and I had to do that instead. But I still want to watch uh, uh, Burning. Uh, an elephant sitting still, happy as uh, Lazaro, and some others. I think you've seen all of those. Uh, yes, 
the film that I watched post-festival that I liked the most, which I would uh, highly recommend, it is European, Sean, but uh, uh, Sorry Angel, which I did not expect to uh, like nearly as much as I did, but uh, it's sort of like a flip side to BPM uh, in some ways. I know you like that film uh, a lot. Yeah, that was, was that last year? Last year, yeah. Yeah, that so, was my favorite at fifth last year. Um, yeah, there's just like a lot of really good films this year at VIF like that that maybe aren't the thing that uh, is going to top my like best of the year list, but just pretty solid down the line. So, yeah. All right. Well, we will probably not have another podcast until the end of the year <laughs> at the rate the Francis Farmer show is going. So, uh, yeah, uh, you can follow Evan on Twitter at. Uh, EB Morgan one. Yes. And I am, uh, at the end of cinema and you can follow, uh, us at, uh, Seattle screen scene and, uh, Evan, you want to, you want to plug your podcast? Oh yeah, I do have, yes, I do <laughs> have a podcast. That's it. Well, thank you. Uh, yes. Uh, Eli, uh, Berger and I host a podcast called snakes and funerals, um, where we talk about old obscure movies. So it's fun. Yeah. It's, we should have a new episode good. at some point relatively soon they're sparsely paced, uh, spaced out maybe not quite as sparse as the Fr francis farmer show these days but nothing is as sparse as the <laughs> francis farmer show i don't know some of those uh, european romanian movies that played in this or whatever pretty pretty sparse but yeah but there's more of them than there are francis farmer shows so. true all right uh thanks for listening and uh we will see you next time